My baby just kicked me out tonight Don't know what I did I don't want to start a fight I just want to hear my friends They're the craziest, kookiness, sports talk, jivingness No facts spewing, they're always ripping Poop and a Blast podcast It's here for you today If you want to hear about some baseball As the French would say, le bon spectacle Poop and a Blast podcast It's here for you today Poop and a Blast podcast It's here for you today Hey, hey, welcome to the Bloop and a Blast podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Sussman. And I'm Kurt Hackamer. And today on the show, we have a very special guest. We have the dining critic and associate editor of Pittsburgh Magazine, Mr. Halby Klein. How you doing, Hal? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks awesome. for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and we're great to do this the second go-round. We lost the audio for the first half, uh, so... You don't have to let them know that, Elliot. I There's like to break the fourth wall. The magic of... Radio editing <laughs> would mean that you would barely notice that. that. That's true. And that's how good we are over here. We can give a second try and it's like the first all over again. It, yeah. was, a, it, was, a, it was a dual computer setup and now it's a single computer setup we're, again. We're downgrading. One we're, microphone. Uh, we're uninventing the wheel. What, uh, yeah. how, would, uh, <laughs> how would Mr. Neil Huntington spin this? Uh, what do you think he would say? <laughs> oh, geez. Um, oh, we're, we're putting our money in on the, the future, Pretty, the prospects? Yeah, we're, go, uh, we're going into the future. <laughs> we did it all to get Drew Hutchison. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Drew Hutchison, superstar. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so, I guess we have some like minor Pirates news to talk about. Yeah, beforehand. yeah, at the front so, end. We were presented with an interesting idea, I guess. The Pirates are going to be playing a baseball game in Williamsport this year after the Little League World Series, which is an interesting uh, idea. They're, the Pirates and Cardinals were supposed to play at PNC Park in on August 20th, and now they're playing that game uh, at the, the big league-sized ballpark in the, uh, the Little League town, Yeah, which is, which is sort of interesting. But I thought it'd be more interesting is if instead of instead of them playing on the major league size baseball field, they just played this game on the very small little league size baseball field. Great idea. And I think it would be a total mess. <laughs> <laughs> it would definitely be a disaster. We, right. uh, I mean, we were talking. You know, we thought at first this would be kind of a blowout home run game, right? So yeah. no matter what, even if it's a, a routine fly out to sure. right field. At 180 feet to the right field post, yeah. that's home a home run, run you right. know? Yeah, I mean, it's a very high, long home run. Sure. But... The, the ex- so to explain a little bit is before, uh, the, the Little League baseball field is pretty much half the size of the Major League ballpark. So you've got like 180 feet to the right field, 200 some feet to center, and the base paths are 45 feet apart, um, which is, uh, you know, very, very small for a bunch of grown men, uh, not only grown men, but actual professional athletes to be playing, <laughs> be playing a sport on. Uh, because, I don't know, there's not going to be many real outcomes. You can either, you're pretty much either going to strike out, you're going to walk, or you're going to hit a home run, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> it's got to be one of those three probabilities. Yeah. So, like, at first glance, we thought that it would just be, like, you know, everyone will score 100 runs. But the second, like, when we thought about it more, if the pitcher's mound is 30 feet away from the plate or however many feet instead of 60, then that makes everything a whole lot 
more difficult. I mean, you're like, <laughs> your your pitchers are going to be on top of you. You know, guys throwing 100 miles an hour from that close of a distance is probably impossible to hit. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'd say. How? What do you think? I mean, do you think? Uh, do you think any major leaguer could be able to hit from that? Uh, I think it would be tough. I think it would be tough. When we were talking earlier, I suggested maybe someone should go for a bunt. Yeah. And just stick their bat out there and, and let the uh, let the ball do the work for them. Right. And maybe even you know you could see the first bunt home run in the yeah. history of the major league baseball. <laughs> yeah. On the be... tiny field. Yeah. Just like do a push bunt upward a little bit. And, you right. Know, because I'd imagine that if you wanted to hit. A major league fastball at half the distance, you would just have to like stand in the batter's box and just start swinging like this, and, <laughs> and just like wa- like waving the bat around and and hoping that you make contact with the ball because there's no way to like you can't you can't think that much I think that quickly your eyes don't work that well just from a regular major league fastball coming into you, let alone one that's essentially twice as fast. I think it'd be tough. I think maybe if you had the pitchers pitch with their offhand. Oh, that's a good idea. That could work. Like that could work a little bit. Bats, tiny, bats. Gloves. <laughs> tiny bats. Tiny bats. Tiny bats. Yeah. How about yeah. have to throw softballs yeah, too? Yeah. If you know, if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if they like had a pitching machine, or yeah. if they had a person soft tossing, I think it would be a really fun game. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't know. I think they should do it. Nerf, yeah. nerf, uh, nerf baseball. Oh, with the ball. With the ball. Yeah, that would be fun. Especially the major league. Level. I bet Bar- I bet Garrett Cole could throw a mean slider with that wiffle ball. Just, like, <laughs> just go out of the stadium. Or just have the, the sickest twelve six. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, just drop right down. <laughs> yeah, I um, should write an article about that. I think you should definitely should. <laughs> and speaking of writing, speaking of writing, that leads perfectly into our to our discussion with Hal today, and the reason why we brought him on. So, as we said at the front end of the episode, uh, Hal is. The Dining Critic and the Associate Editor for Pittsburgh Magazine. He's also a good friend of mine. Uh, thanks for being a good pal and thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks. All, all of those things are true. <laughs> Facts. No need to beat around the bush. Yeah, right? no. Full disclosure up front. So, Hal, where on earth did you come from? Well, I come from uh, from Queens, Manhattan. Or Queens, Manhattan. Those are two separate boroughs <laughs> right, of yeah. New York. I did live in Manhattan when I was older, but I was born part in... Part of the house is in Queens? Yeah, part, part of the house. Right, right there over yeah. the over the east, <laughs> straddling the East River. It's a very long house. No, I was, uh, I was born in uh, Jamaica, Queens. Oh, awesome. And uh, grew up in the suburbs in New City, New York, uh, in Rockland County. Moved to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area when I was 14 with my family. And uh, that's where they still are. And I moved, lived back in New York, in, in Manhattan, this time. I lived in Los Angeles for a little bit, and now I'm here in Pittsburgh. Okay, when did you come to Pittsburgh, by the way? So I went to Pittsburgh about six and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, I came to get a master's degree in food studies at Chatham. I was part of the first cohort of one of the more esoteric master's degrees that a person can get. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm often asked, uh, food science? Mm-hmm. Or are you a chef? Or any of those things? And, and none of those are true, although I am a pretty good cook. So yeah, what, what did the program kind of encapsulate? Give uh, give the listeners an idea. I, I have an idea because I know somebody else went through the program, but... It's, it's fairly broad-ranging. So it's, it's looking through sociology, through food culture and history, um, through food writing and journalism, through agriculture, at our food systems as a whole. So we get a, a lot of exposure to different facets of how our food gets to where it gets along with the heavy dose of social justice and why that's important. And at a certain point, we all kind of picked um, some specialties and some tracks. I chose communication and ended up uh, with a job writing about 
drinking for Pittsburgh City Paper for a while, which was a lot of fun, and doing stories on food and the environment for the Allegheny Front, which is a fantastic radio show that airs on WESA. Yeah, great show. Yeah. Love that one. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, what kept you here? You know, you could have taken this degree and kind of gone anywhere, especially, you know, now is uh, food culture and our farms are getting a lot more notoriety and people care a whole lot more about where their food comes from. You know, why why did you stay in Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh's cool. I mean, it's it's it was a lot of it was great timing that I moved to the city right at this time where things were really starting to develop in food. A lot of chefs, a lot of bartenders, a lot of people were really farmers were really starting to grow into their own. It had a lot of opportunities. And there was also an opportunity for me at the same time to do what I wanted to do here, which was great, which, you know, would have been a lot harder to go to a place like San Francisco. But I think even more than that, it's just Pittsburgh is a really legitimately amazing place to live. And, you know, yeah, it really, I mean, it really is. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a place that has almost everything you'd want in a big city, but all the, the good vibes and good feels of community that you wouldn't find in a place like say Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so it was, you know, it made sense to stay here for me. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And for all those reasons, I've also stayed here. I've now, in January, I became a Pittsburgher longer than I ever was a Cincinnati. And so I understand the Pittsburgh charm, you know, it, uh, keeps you here and it's, it's, it's hard to want to leave when yeah. things are so good, you I've know? I've just never left. Yeah, and you're a smart <laughs> guy. <laughs> yeah. It's like every time I had a, a like, a, you know, maybe I should move somewhere else. And it's like, oh, Pittsburgh's like pretty cool and I could buy a house here. Yeah, That's right. Fine. I can afford to live here pretty <laughs> yeah, comfortably. Yeah, yeah, like not a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of good reasons to stay here. Right. So, you know, working for Pittsburgh Magazine and, and doing this stuff, take us through the, the process of your writing. Like, um, let's say specifically for a monthly restaurant review. What is your process that you go through? Um, how do you pick a place that gets chosen to start, I guess? So a lot of it has to do with what's new, what's opening, right? So it doesn't make sense necessarily to review a restaurant that's been open for a couple of years. It certainly doesn't make sense to review something that my predecessors reviewed unless there are specific instances. Um, I'm thinking about Spoon, which I reviewed recently, that got a new chef, really did a redesign of the entire interior that made sense to re-review it again. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are places that open that are interesting and go, oh, well, this has been opened. I tend to wait about three months or so before reviewing for an opening. I'll write something online. It's, you know, it's with, with being able to tell stories online, it's, you know, there's the process is sped up a little bit. Um, And so I'll want to maybe do a first look, go in, but not look at it in the same critical sense that I would in a restaurant that's been matured for a couple months. Sure. Um, and then every once in a while, there are really cool circumstances. I was sitting in Salem's a couple months ago, um, which is an amazing restaurant. It's almost it's more like a cafeteria hot bar than it is a restaurant. I never really Excellent. even thought to review it. I go there a lot just to eat lunch, and it was shortly after the election, and I was you know everything's crazy. And I was looking around and thinking, realizing what an inclusive, wonderful, amazing space this is, um, run by Libyan immigrants, run, you know, attended by, there's cops on the beat sitting next to social activists at one table, and new, new Pittsburgh tech people sitting next to longtime Pittsburgh residents, you know, in the same space. And it was just really amazing. And I'm eating this lamb curry, which is delicious, and thinking... Oh, what a great opportunity! Because there were a couple of restaurants that I knew I wanted to review that hadn't been open long enough yet. Yeah. So every once in a while, something like that will come up too. That it's yeah, a place that's a been, yeah, that's been you know in that space since 2010, but has been open since 1983, serving food since 87 or 88. Right. That you know would never think about getting a restaurant review. That suddenly it's like there's a, this great opportunity to do it. So 
That's interesting. But yeah, but I've got 11 per year formal reviews. So okay. we do, for the best restaurants issue, we don't have a review that issue. So makes sense. Yeah. Which we will get to later in the podcast. Yeah. yeah. So is there, when you go out to eat for fun or just like, you know, mm-hmm. you're going on a date or something to dinner, do you have like higher standards or do you go to like, will you just go, you know, where you can find like the greasiest hamburger or something? Is there something that's like, you you don't ever get to review and that's like a place that you are drawn to? Yeah, I mean, standards are interesting too, right? Because maybe that greasy hamburger is extraordinarily delicious. Yeah, absolutely. Because and like, so, it's not exactly, you know, sometimes the best food comes from a, an unremarkable sort of source. Yeah, and I think that is I think that is actually something in, in restaurant culture that's really changed for the better mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, is that there used to be a much more conservative definition of a restaurant and right. a conservative definition of what standards are. And I think now it, it's all about context, right? So... I'm not going to go somewhere that I hate the food. Yeah. Um, but if I just want to have a cool chill night out, you know, def- absolutely. I want to go somewhere. Yeah. That's like that. And so, I mean, I think it's weird. Like when you eat for a living, like, yeah, like I probably, even if I'm not trying to be analytical at a restaurant, I probably somewhere inside of me am. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's a very different experience when I'm actually out on a review where I'm really paying like deeper attention so it's it's kind of fun to go with me on review dinners, but it's also kind of not because I will just disappear, yeah. and you know take right. notes or or you know whatever my process is. So how do how often do you how often do you go to a restaurant when you're reviewing it, and what is the reaction that you get from people who I guess own the place, or is is are you, do you receive special treatment as a reviewer, or is that are you trying to be incognito? So uh, the second question is interesting because I'm not anonymous. Um, I was I was writing about food, yeah, especially writing about drinks. He's not anonymous either. Yeah, I mean, he's you know, but he's a little bit. He tried to be for a while. Yeah, yeah. and then, and then I think like, he gave up. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's it's as a general rule, dining critics are there are very very few that are anonymous right now. I think I'm probably a little bit more sociable mm-hmm. than my counterparts in other cities. Again, because what I was the way the food I was writing about before being a restaurant critic involved a lot of just getting to know people Mm -hmm. um and especially writing about drinking and bars and bartenders who I adore you know it's hard once you get to know them you can't just shut off the blinders but I try to not be um conspicuous especially Mm -hmm. if I'm reviewing a dinner um and so I usually go three times general practice um occasionally more sometimes very rarely less if it's a super expensive place and I can get the gist of it like twice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also really lucky to work for a publication that recognizes the value of reimbursing the dining critic. Right. So I'm not, paying <laughs> on, you know, which is great. And it allows me to really imagine. explore. And there are times where I will go to my editor and say, Hey, you know, I've been three times, but there's this thing that I'm not quite sure about, or I'm not quite getting, you know, I kind of want to go one more time for this specific thing. And she's always open to that, which is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, do I get recognized? Of course. Um, do I get special treatment? probably not more than anyone in the restaurant industry would. Um, and it doesn't affect me at all. I know it's easier to say than to, you know, yeah. to believe, but it's like, I'm, if someone sends me a, a, a extra dish, I'm not going to be more predisposed to like their restaurant. Yeah. I think the difference is sometimes chefs will know, Oh, well they didn't, I was actually just at this conference in Louisville with a bunch of food writers and this had nothing to do with me. I didn't know the chef at all at the time. But one of she was friends with one of the people I was dining with, and she sent out this sweet potato dish as a you know thanks for coming. Just mm-hmm. want to send you out something. I think she also sent it out because it was, in our opinion, of everything we ordered, 
so amazing and it was one of those oh well you didn't order this i should send this out so i think there's a little bit of that's cool you know better send out you know x dish because it's delicious and they didn't order it yeah but it's it's funny i've only actually been really people people have only really really caught on noticeably to what i was doing as far as reviewing i'd say twice Oh, yeah. And it only was like blatantly called out by someone once, and it was kind of hilarious. Oh, wow. <laughs> we actually, like? we actually used the phrase, do we have to do this dance right now? <laughs> Which was amazing. That's great. <laughs> and I said, yes, we do. <laughs> this is the dance that we are doing. Yeah. yeah. This is what's happening. Yeah. Have you ever been asked to leave? No. no. <laughs> Who would kick out Hal? He's a, yeah, nice he's a very nice guy. He's a very friendly, admirable dude. I don't know. I'm not a restaurant owner. Well, I guess that's true. That's true. <laughs> Um, so like what kind of things are you looking for that are unique to your perspective? And this is kind of a leading question because for example, I notice almost all of your reviews, you talk about music, uh, setting the tone for the restaurant. And I don't really notice a whole lot of other restaurant critics or dining critics doing that sort of thing. So that's one. What else would you say? Like, what are you looking for that I guess it nuance that a lot of other people don't notice? Yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's the little details, right? So the, the basic criteria is are you accomplishing at a high level what you're setting out to do for what you're setting out to do? So it's going to be different in certain places. So music, for example, at some places, it doesn't matter if the music's a little bit louder because it's a fun place, it's a little bit wild. In other places, if there's already kind of a low energy and then the music is low energy, it really distracts, it like detracts from the experience. Mm-hmm. So looking for things like that, looking to see how, if servers are quick to pick up on, if anything goes amiss, um, if management's quick to pick up on that. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm a people person, and so I really like it when everyone there just seems like they're comfortable in their own shoes, yeah. which is hard sometimes. Um, and then it's you know I'm I love good food and I love nuance and dishes. I like people that are sourcing really well. Um, I can usually tell if you know if you're if you're going to serve tomatoes in February um, on I a sandwich or something, sandwich right? Too, yeah, yeah. And so it's it's things like that where it's. Um, are you, are you addressing the entire plate? Um, or are you putting side dishes on that you don't care about? Right. Things like, like that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. I'm definitely interested in hearing like what, what you think makes a, because I, I feel like if you go to enough restaurants, they stump stuff kind of blends together. Is mm-hmm. that, is that something that happens? So what, what like, is it, are there more things that you look for? Like, like this fresh ingredients and like interesting plating and just like ideas with food. Is that just? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you know, it's, it's, like, it's like a very nebulous thing. You don't really know. Like, I don't know. As a non-restaurant critic, and uh, only sometimes restaurant goer, I don't really. I don't. I, it's hard to like think of what I like in a restaurant. I don't know if I can pinpoint it. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because a lot of it is a bit in the ether. And it comes with just going to restaurants a lot and right. having a, a lot of it, some of it too is having a base of comparison. So if I'm going to review a barbecue restaurant, I'm going to go to barbecue restaurant if I have an opportunity in another city mm-hmm. and see how that compares and see those points of things. So it was interesting. I was just in Louisville, like I said, I was just in Louisville and um, the hot brown sandwich is, is one of Louisville's most iconic dishes. We went to the place where they serve it. Locally, kind of a turkey Devonshire. Yeah, playoff. yeah. They're so basically, open-faced turkey sandwich, Mornay sauce, bacon, um, delicious, knock you out. Mm-hmm. 
And it just so happened that Pork and Beans, which is the review that's coming out for April, mm-hmm. um, they serve a hot brown there because they have a smoked turkey uh, that's available. Their smoked turkey is amazing. And I came back and actually edited the review because I actually thought the one at Pork and Beans was better oh, cool. than the one at the Brown the, Hotel. The, the yeah, one. Yeah. Um, so things like that. So when you have a point of reference, that really helps too, I think. Yeah. And I think that's where professional comes in, professionalism comes in is when you have a broader point of reference. And I think traveling is really important because right. then you lose a bit of, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of have a sort of Homerism attitude and being like, this is the greatest. And it's like, no, it's not. Like, they're, you know, if you go to this place in this city and this place here, they're actually, this is yeah. where they do it better. Just because you invented it or made it. Yeah. It doesn't mean you are the best one. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes you go somewhere else and you go, oh, wow, this is, they've actually taken this and made it better. Right. Yeah. Hal and I were actually having this conversation the other night about if something has good bones, we were talking about in relation to a cocktail. If you have a good foundation for a cocktail, even if that cocktail isn't great, like let's say it's, I don't know, a Harvey Wallbanger or something, some disco drink that's overly sweetened. But if there's good foundation laid down there, then you can play upon that and make it better. So therefore, you know, I totally believe that the hot brown at Pork and Beans is better. If you know what the foundation is and you're like, well, if this changed a little bit, if we altered this a little bit, then, you know... We can yeah, ultimately take make thing a better dish, right? It. So yeah, yeah, the creative process, right? Yeah. So speaking of uh, all, all of this kind of stuff, tying into baseball and the Pirates. So, um, you know, you you fell in love with Pittsburgh. Did you fall in love with baseball because of the Pirates? Is this, or were you a Yankees fan? Were you a Padres fan? Yeah, I grew up a Yankee fan okay. um, when I was a kid. The Yankees were terrible. Oh, um, yeah. I, uh, we'll say for One just of the, the very small portions of time. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm gonna say for the record that my uh, my 1987 baseball card uh, where the Yankees I think might have been the worst team in the league that year, or were certainly certainly close to it. Uh, <laughs> New York Yankees were really my favorite team, and Mike Pagliarulo, who my brother just met, who was the third baseman at the time, who had a, a mustache to rival Don Mattingly. Um, <laughs> Uh, was listed as my was my favorite player. Uh-huh. And they, were, they were a really bad baseball team, and it just so happens that every city I've lived in since New York has always had a National League team. So it's always oh, been yeah, easy right. to find that National League team. I guess when I grew up in the Bay Area, I lived closer to Oakland than to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But Will Clark was was the dude at the time, yeah. Yeah. and so I became a Giants fan. Um, and you know, lived in Los Angeles. Dodgers played there. You just missed um, the Bash Brothers though. No, they were there. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> they were there. But I mean, but the Yankees through it all were always my team. Uh, when I moved to Pittsburgh, and this is sort of hard to believe now, um, I had no friends. Um, <laughs> I moved here for grad school. I had, actually had one friend who I'd met um, who had met when I was out here looking for schools. But it was before I moved here about two weeks before school started, and she wasn't back yet. So I just was basically here. Um, it was me. Um, so I ended up going to a lot of Pirates games. They just happened to have a homestand at the time. And this was, you know, when they were still terrible. Right. Um, the tail end of their terribleness. And so it was very easy to get tickets. Yeah. yeah. And so I just went to a bunch of Pirates games my first couple of, like, the first couple of days here. I just kind of hung out and looked at the city and, you know, and it was cool. And it's, you know, the same way that I feel like I've grown with the city. You know, it's like to see this team and the core of this team grow is really exciting. Yeah. Um, and then I was dating someone for a couple of years whose parents had season tickets and they never wanted to go to the Sunday home game. So I went to every single Sunday home game for about three years. Awesome, man. <laughs> Except for like you. three or four games. Holy moly. You know, you know dying in the, the August heat. Yeah, yeah right. right. <laughs> One o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> and suffering in the April and the yeah. cold. <laughs> Going full circle. So that was exciting. So I ended up really just getting to know the team 
in, in that way, yeah. which is kind of cool. That's a, that's a common thread amongst the people we bring on who aren't from Pittsburgh originally, is that they're like, oh yeah, I came to Pittsburgh in 2009 and I got to go to the Pirates games for like $3. Yeah. So it, was, it was pretty awesome. It was the cheapest way I could do anything. And, yeah. And, like, and that's kind of, I guess that's kind of how I became more of a Pirates fan too, is that, you know, I was, you know, whenever I was in high school or in college and you don't have any money, I couldn't afford to go to... Uh, Steelers games and then the Penguins got good and I couldn't afford to go to those mm-hmm. games so I was like I guess I just got to go to Pirates games all the time which is fine because I liked them a lot but they were so bad yes, <laughs> you, could, you could buy a really cheap ticket and then go yeah. wherever you wanted at yeah. the stadium and then you like get to that weird uh, moment where you're just kind of like I kind of wish they were bad again because season like opening day tickets are a hundred dollars now <laughs> yeah, times, times yeah. have changed yeah, it's, it's, that's how it works <laughs> That's true. Well, your co-host right here, pretty yeah. much similar story, bought a 10-game season pass in 2008 or nine, and just fell in love right away, just mm-hmm. like going to the ballpark. I thought it was a great place to experience the ball game and eventually learn the rules of the game, so I totally feel you on just hanging out at the ballpark. It's kind of like Lawrenceville, you know, it, like, you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't much there, but you can definitely get a beer for $2. Yeah, but right. Like, you know, and then nowadays it's all built up, but you know, you might have to pay, you know, $14 for a sandwich. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> still go to Hambones. Yeah, yeah, still go to Hambones. Thank, thank God. God. <laughs> we should go back Can't sometime. wait for Live at Hambones too. Yeah. Another good one. So how you actually, you have a weird kind of uh, alter, well, a uh, hobby of yours that is also an alter ego. You are you in the Screen Actors Guild? I, I am in the Screen Act Screen Actors Guild, yes. which is super awesome. You're and, definitely uh, our first guest that has ever been in the Screen Actors yeah. Guild and Actors Equity. Oh, stage, nice. in the Stage Union too. Oh nice. man, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. About you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm learning something about my pal here. All right. <laughs> so uh, related to the Pirates, I know you were in a 2014 T-Mobile ad. Uh, I forget the name of that ad, but it involved Andrew McCutcheon making a play at the North Side Notch. So. Um, you were the guy in the commercial who was getting the video on his T-Mobile phone and then losing your shit right after True. you made the play. I mean, <laughs> and you uh, you were very enthusiastic. Your your acting chops really came through on that one. Yeah. So one of, one of the quirky thing about me is uh, one of my one of my quirks is I actually think high fiving strangers is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as part of the as part of the audition for that, we had to do a lot of high fives, and people were really awkward about it. And I was not awkward about it at all because I think it's really fun. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's how I ended up getting yeah, this commercial. Like, oh, this guy's great at high fives. Yeah. <laughs> that's not too bad. That's good. It looks good on the credits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So the high five is how you ended up getting the role. I, I think so. Yeah. That's amazing. So I mean, tell us about that shooting day how long was it uh, when did it take place it was fun it was a 14 hour day wow okay. um, which is pretty long for a commercial shoot pretty yeah long. especially a 30 second half yeah it, it, you know the challenge of it is shooting outside so suddenly it's cloudy and the light gets lighting gets changed and so everything's got to like be on hold for a few minutes um so there were some weather elements but it was pretty good we ended up the i think there were seven or eight of us that were in the principal cast okay so you know it's a hierarchical system uh, when you're when you're working on a commercial. So we got to go sit off, you know, in the shade. Oh, nice! Hang out. Like, yeah, have, you're the lead. Right? Have juice, or whatever. <laughs> and right. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, Kutch actually got to sit indoors. So he, you oh, know, got, we don't even know where he, you know, he just they, as, as, when we were ready to start rolling, you know, we were still out there for 45 minutes, and then Kutch came out. Um, and yeah, we just shot. We, uh, you know, they did some. Some group shots, some close-up shots, some high-five shots, which I nailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was that was it. I went uh, at the end of the day. Um, I knew that we had some pretty significant overtime, and we had a, a lengthy meal penalty. Um, 
unions. Okay. They're they, great. Love the unions. Yeah. yeah. After, after an hour and 59 minutes, a producer ran over and made the director break for lunch because if not, they were going to start having to pay us, you know, stupid money. Yeah, right. Um, we were all like looking over like, oh man, we're going to get... Yeah. <laughs> I don't need food. I yeah, I mean, it was. It was <laughs> we all looked, and it was. It was an hour. So after two hours, of, yeah, of you know being pushing past the six-hour meal period, mm-hmm. um, and it was an hour and fifty-nine minutes. It was yeah. right on the dot. Um, wow. But after you know, long day. After that, went and uh, grabbed a friend and went straight to Fakuda, which was a wonderful sushi oh, restaurant. R.I.P. Fakuda. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so, but it was a lot of fun. And then I don't think any of us really expected it to air as much as it did. So it aired. Um, <laughs> so the Pirates got eliminated in the wild card game that year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all thought, well, oh, well, that was fun. You know, yeah. it's not really going to air. And then I started during the World Series, the Giants were in it, getting calls from everyone I knew back at home. Right. Um, they were like, the did I just see you right? in a commercial? And then uh, World Series ended, commercials stopped running, and then but we kept getting these holding fees. So commercials run in thirteen week cycles, okay. um, and if they want to keep it for another cycle, they have to pay you a holding fee because basically at that point you're representing. Um, I think I was banned from doing commercials for other sports and commercials for other uh, mobile phone carriers. Not uh, compete, but sure. they have to pay you, you know, to, to keep that up. Um, so we just kept getting that, and I was thinking, holy cow, like, this might actually start running again. And then when the season started again the next year, it was running all over the place, which was great. Yeah. They definitely don't want you being on, in an NFL commercial high-fiving, you know, at Heinz Field. Not when uh, you've got my high-five skills. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know your assets. Yeah. Right? yeah. Strengths. It's a much sought-after commodity. Yeah. So, I mean, how many takes, speaking of your, your awesome high-five skills, did it was it one take with your badass uh, losing your shit? How many takes until the director said, that's the one? I can't remember. It was probably it was probably five or six. Five or six, okay. Yeah, from different angles, you know, and then you go to another angle, do a couple takes, and yeah. <laughs> did you or any of the actors get to interact with Cutch? You said he was off, you know, between takes and stuff like that. Yeah, he was, so we were in the in the stands, he was on the field, so he came over, said hi to all of us in the front row, shook our hands, and then that was about it. That's cool, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, has your, your choice acting chops of losing your shit, has that led to any other acting gigs for you? That was, that was it, you know, some Pennsylvania lottery auditions. Um, it's something that, you know, my career before I moved here was all about acting. So theater, film to a certain extent. Um, and so, but it's, it's not what I'm trying to do anymore, but it would be fun to do another movie or another commercial or whatever if that happened. What else have you been in? I was in a movie called Bottle Shock, um, which is... It's great because this actually just happened again last. Yeah, I actually had I was I've been in two movies with Alan Rickman. Oh, awesome! And I had the the best conversation I ever had as an actor with him. The first time I talked to him, he um, when I was in college did this summer training program in Oxford, and he came and did this guest lecture one day. And it was you know when you're 21 years old and it's the the most impactful thing in your life, and it is at the yeah. time. And but it's something you always remember. And so I remember talking to him about acting and playing Shakespeare and doing classical theater and England versus New York and film versus TV. And it was this amazing conversation, which I was like, felt like I was barely keeping up with. Yeah. And then every other conversation I had with him, which were like a decent amount, basically just went like me being, hey, Alan, and him being like, hello, Hal. And me being like, how's it going, Alan? And him being like, fine. And you're like, cool. How's it going? <laughs> and he'd be like, fine, Hal. And you're like, great. Things are good. You're like, <laughs> I just couldn't talk to him. Like, I was just trying to recreate that magical. Yeah, all I wanted right. to do was keep talking to him about 
Yeah. Anything, right? Yeah. At least it happened once. That's all you yeah. need. Yeah. <laughs> like esoteric British movement theater or something like that. And yeah. You know, he just did it. Nothing, nothing, yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing would come out. What was the difference? Was he drunk the first time? <laughs> no, I think I was just, I was so eager and excited. Yeah. And then after that, I just, no, I don't know. I, like couldn't, I was trying to like be like his bro or something like that. And I was not on the same level as him. And so there was nothing <laughs> to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, we really don't have that much in common. Yeah. <laughs> so okay you're you're an actor you're a writer so where where do these lines all kind of intersect to you where do you think that acting and writing kind of finds i don't know where do you see the parallels between the two for you i mean i think i see it more just in the the general sense of of seeing people's graciousness and vibes and being present i think it's really important when you're an actor to be really present and I think if you're working at a restaurant, it's again like that that thing that you feel but you can't feel, you know, is mm-hmm. is someone just throwing together a meal? Are they really there in the kitchen right. doing something? Is a bartender attentive? Are their feet on the ground? Um, or is is it an ego in the air? And so I think things like that maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel like I'm probably the only person in journalism that thinks I'm in a very secure career mm-hmm. um, because acting <laughs> is such a during a renaissance. Yeah, I mean, I, I got real lu- very true. lucky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I remember when I first started, I was freelancing, and people were like, "Is it hard?" And I'm like, "I mean, people tell you no when they reject a story, which is great. And acting, you just go to an audition, you don't hear anything ever if you don't get it. So right, that's how it is. Sports writing too. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, like, hey, I have this story of it. And then he's like, yeah, it's, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to people saying yes or no, how do you pick the 25 best restaurants lists for Pittsburgh Magazine? What kind of things do you weigh out for the process of that? So I actually don't pick the list. Okay. Um, I'm, we have a committee. Uh, we... A couple of years ago, moved it up from 25 to 33. Okay. And then that's not a fixed number. Um, it just happened to be for the last two years where the boat um, landed, where the cutoff was. I see. So that could change this year. Um, so we basically have something called the Independent Restaurant Review Panel, um, which started a long time ago after there was a reader's poll that picked Pizza Hut as the best Italian restaurant in Pittsburgh. This wow. is a long time ago. Yeah. Okay. And the publishers at the time said we have to do something and assembled this committee of people. And so now we've got, I think there are 24 people um, that are active. Um, and it's there's kind of a dining season where people go out and then we meet monthly and we talk. Um, I hope I have a strong influence since I do it, you know, professionally. But I think there are a lot of smart people on it that also have opinions and we argue and you know, it's interesting. The arguments will change, you know, from there are some people that have a much more classic definition of a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people on it that, you know, even the idea of having to go up to a counter and order will disqualify the place. And then there are other people that are much more interested in, is there a really interesting international restaurant where someone's doing something to a really high degree? Um, and I think, you know, we, we hash it out and hopefully we come up with the list that is a is a really great list that represents what is outstanding in Pittsburgh. Wow. So it, yeah. So it really takes like a full year and you really have to discuss these things like you're saying on a monthly basis. Yeah, and we talk it out and then and then at the end of this process we vote. So we end up with a list of you know, we'll we'll eliminate places that nobody you know, if a place opens and it's like not great or whatever. Um, that we can all kind of come to a consensus and go, all right, we don't really need to vote on this one. And then there are other places that people like and people don't, and it comes down to the vote, and we we look at the math mm-hmm. when it comes down to the end of it, and we go like, all right, that's you know, this is an appropriate cutoff point. Yeah. 
and this is the list. Wow. Okay. And so, yeah. It does. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's great. And it's good, I think, to have multiple opinions in a list like this. Mm -hmm. Um, I think just to have one person do it would be detrimental. Yeah. Um, I see that. Yeah. And so, but it's, it always is a really interesting list. And then it's, you know, it's, then I take the package from there and I write it and I organize it. And, you know, I have a certain, once we get the list editorially, we've got a certain degree of freedom about how we want to frame it Mm -hmm. and how we want to make it the package that's best to service our readers. Gotcha. Because I think then it's, you know, so last year, for example, um, was, we really broadened it out in a lot of ways last year to include certain places that maybe didn't fit a traditional definition of a restaurant. And so we were out front in Chengdu Gourmet, which is, I'll say, my favorite restaurant in Pittsburgh. But especially last year at this time, it was, you know, the the floor was this terrible carpeting. They didn't their service together. It was a really, it was a little bit of a hard sell, but it was, you know, this chef is doing these things that are so amazing that we have to find a way to recognize it. And we got enough people that realized that, which, again, was smart because he was just named a semifinalist for James Beard Award. Right, yeah. Um, but then we decided, I decided editorially, I'm going to categorize the list last year. We still listed it alphabetically, but I, I put the thing in the front of it, go here for. Mm-hmm. And then this way, you wouldn't end up in a situation where you're looking for a, a, a fancy night out and yeah. you go to a place that's maybe a little bit more food forward, but doesn't really care as much about service or design right. versus this is a place where, you know, it's all about service. It's all about design. It's, you know, the place to bring if you've got your, your, your um, aunt and uncle who are used to, who maybe aren't used to being adventurous eaters. This is a good place. This is the best place for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's yeah. cool to categorize in that way. Yeah. And that, I didn't know it was such a large panel. And uh, I mean, it makes sense now. Obviously, it has to be a year long process, right? Because restaurants evolve over even the course of a year, the way that the baseball team does and that sort of thing, the way that things play out are always kind of interesting. Yeah. And it's great. And places, you know, end up back on the list, places drop out of the list. Um, sometimes there are things that happen. So before I was there, at one point, uh, Dinette had gotten dropped, and I think Dinette is a is a freaking amazing restaurant. Um, and it was just the thing of, you know, for maybe certain people to stop going there, and it, was, and it took someone, you know, like as dining critic for me to be like, you need to go here and you need to like realize this context of this place because like this should be on the list. And, you know, it's on the list. So, yeah. 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 Is, it, is it like a thing, I guess, like when you mentioned Dinette was, was like kind of sort of forgotten about, I guess it was probably the, what happened to it. Is that, are there, are there new restaurants that are on the list or is it just like every restaurant? So you have, so did like other restaurants kind of drop off just because they're like old news maybe? So I think it's interesting with restaurants that have been around for a long time because you can tell when restaurants really care about what they're doing yeah. because they stay relevant. So you look at like, say the big burrito restaurants, like every Italian place in Bloomfield. It's like, it like was a great yeah. years ago. Yeah. So right. So like the pleasure bar really. hasn't, the pleasure bar hasn't gotten any better. Right. And yeah. you know, since the eighties <laughs> and they're not trying to, and they don't care um, to, to do that. That's not their focus. Whereas you look at a place like Casbah, which has been around for, you know, I think 26 years now. Mm-hmm. And Casbah just has this solid, slow but steady upward trajectory that just manages, you know, they're, they're not changing the menu every season. They're not changing the menu every year. They're not doing, they've got dishes. They, they have actual dishes on the menu. They've been on the menu the entire time the restaurant has opened. Mm-hmm. But even the composition of those dishes has gotten better because they're paying attention to where they're getting their ingredients from. They're still paying attention to what they're doing. They have a kitchen that really cares. Yeah. 
And so it's, it's in the same way that, you know, we get excited about new restaurants and new things that are happening. I also think it's really exciting when places like that stick around and you go, wow, this place is still relevant mm-hmm. in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. I like that. So if we're, we're going to throw a theoretical question out to you. Um, if PNC Park were going to be considered on the 25 best or whatever, on your best restaurants list... Um, what would it need to do to get there? You know, what, what would you say would be a thing, what menu items would need to change? Obviously it has to exist within the realm of being a ballpark. It has to serve ballpark, you know, foods that are easy to eat in your seat while you're watching a game. What do you think that they could do to maybe make the cut? I think this is the challenge with institutional food in general and sports food in general is that they tend to be run by a a catering corporation, a dining services corporation, and those contracts don't let individual restaurants mm-hmm. have as much agency over their stands as they need to have. Yeah, right. And so I think it's an, it's an impossible situation right now, right? Yeah. So if you can't... So say um, Pork and Beans, because they've got stuff at... Uh, Console, right? Yeah, at, at, at the... Energy, at PPG, PPG. 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 Yeah, sorry. PPG. Still not used to it yet. Civic Arena? <laughs> the paint bucket. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whatever. And they do seem to be like a little bit more involved in the process over there. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, you know, if, I think if they wanted to open up something in PNC, they should be able to have control over, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a good thing to centralize employees. But even then, it's, it, maybe it's not because then you're not going to be able to go in and whoever's in charge of cooking there, you're not going to be able to interact with in the same way that you can interact with the chef at your restaurant. Right. Um, you're not going to be able to have the same supply chain as what you have at your restaurant. And so it ends up, changing what's being served there, right? And so I think until that changes, until that happens, I think it's going to be a really challenging situation. I think it's the same with beer and concessions there. Um, True. What about about for a premium price? What about for like the Lexus Club that operates on a bit of a smaller scale? And and for our listeners that don't know or maybe have never gone to a game in Lexus Club, you book a dinner reservation there, so you eat dinner before the game, and then you go and sit in this premium seat right behind home plate. Do you think on a smaller scale? I know they're still run by a, you know, they're run by, I believe, Levy Foods. So there's still a restaurant conglomerate, essentially, for uh, entertainment. But could somebody on a smaller scale do that? Or the way that Outback Steakhouse used to exist in the left field uh, before it became the Rivertown Brewing Hall Fame Club? Do you think that there could be some sort of outlier that could offer up, you know, like an interesting dining experience? Yeah, I think that, I, don't, I don't see why that couldn't happen. I mean, I'm not sure how the how the kitchens work there, but I don't see why you couldn't have that. You have that at you know other institutions mm-hmm. where you've got a, a kitchen. You know, I think it, it's shitty that the experience wouldn't be democratized. That you know, people are sitting in the stands when you when you move to Pittsburgh with no friends and you just want something good to eat. Yeah. <laughs> You're sitting right. by yourself until yeah. grad school starts. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you speak to be, able to, to be able to get a great hamburger. Um, <laughs> just like sit by the bar and yeah. like wait five minutes for a cheeseburger or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's entirely possible uh, to be able to have an experience like that. And that'd be cool to see. I think it'd be a really great added value, actually. Mm-hmm. What a- and I think it's, you know, I think it, it comes down to a lot of that also comes down to those companies not trusting that diners want those experiences and, and would be open to them. 
Yeah, I mean, it's happened before, right? Because PNC Park used to have, they at least had a Nakama outpost, so it was interesting to offer sushi at the ballpark, yeah. like, even stuff like that. What um, what food items would you like to see, even if it was some, it doesn't have to be an outpost of a Pittsburgh dining restaurant, but what kind of options would you like to see at the ballpark, personally, just on, you know, just you? Yeah, I mean, I do love that BRGR has uh, a stand at PNC Park. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to go there. Um, they although have the best fries at the ballpark. Their fries are good. I also like the yeah. crab fries. Oh, okay. Yeah, crab, crab, fries, yeah. crab fries are good. Pizza good. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> even though I'm allergic to crabs, so there's some irony there. But the, <laughs> that's the, the seasonings are great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like those too. Um, I like to see that. You know, it'd be nice to see great barbecue at a ballpark. I think barbecue and baseball go really well together. Totally. It's so easy to do. Too. Yeah. Like tacos are another thing. They have like the steel cactuses there. Mm-hmm. And there's that Trace Rios... Um, in the club level, that's actually not too bad. Yeah, they have like a pork uh, and nacho, like pork nacho thing that called a hangover. Hangover nacho. nachos, yeah, I saw yeah, that. So they're, they're pretty good. It's like <laughs> the, the the cheese is you know a higher quality than you normally get at a ballpark, which is which is good. Yeah, but yeah, there's nothing like like you know you have to go get this at PNC Park, and it's probably a large deal to do with like. What you mentioned with what are the Airmark? Is that uh, there's Airmark and Levy. So Levy's yeah. like the premium end. Airmark is the main concourse. I wish they would hire somebody better to do the the, the press press lunch because it's total garbage. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Except for omelet day. Sundays are omelet day, and they have a guy making omelets, and he's really cool. And he does good omelets. That's nice. awesome. That's it, yeah. <laughs> love, a, love a good omelet station. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I talk about this all the time. I wish there were more vegetarian options. At Absolutely. Ballpark. I, yeah. Veggie. It's, we're only one of three ballparks still, as far as I know. They haven't opened up uh, PNC Park this season yet, but we're only one of three ballparks that doesn't have veggie dogs at this point. So it's insane. It's they're crazy. So cheap. I know. It doesn't make any sense. Like a giant tub of them, and you probably only need them like for. I'll pay eight bucks <laughs> yeah. for it. I don't give a shit. You know, as long as I can load it up at the condiment stand, yeah. that's great. I'll get two of them. I don't care. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah it'd be nice. It'd be cool if someone were were doing like really great fresh giant pretzels. Yeah, that would be oh, awesome. awesome. That'd be great. That's yeah, a good idea. yeah like things like things like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to change ballpark food in a way that you know. But like, yeah, like pretzels, great sandwiches, yeah. anything like that. That you're I, just, getting. I hate regretting. Like you know, man, I'm real hungry. I need to go eat something, and then you have to go and buy an eight dollar pretzel twist that sucks. And yeah, it's right. just like this is this is awful. And then you're 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 stuck in that situation at every sporting event in Pittsburgh, pretty much. Like you, you get like a a crappy boiled hot dog, or uh, you know something like a pretzel that's been sitting out for forever, or like fries that are undercooked. And it's like, oh man, this is yeah, <laughs> and it's a shame. I mean, there like luckily there are a lot of good places near the ballpark sure. um, that you can go to, especially now pork and beans is open, or yeah. you know stop at Bar Marco for brunch before a day game or whatever, or go to Thin Man and get a sandwich. Mm-hmm. But I mean, how nice would it be to be able to like be at the ballpark and be able to do that and you know, have that experience too? Yeah, that would be awesome. Especially if the game goes in extra innings. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> and right, whatever. I'll pay yeah. double it's for like, that Thin Man sandwich. Yeah. I'm, you know? I'm on That's dessert fun. now. I had dinner in the third, so. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I always loved it when the the double header games were announced because then I'd like really go to town and I'd make myself because I I do love that PNC Park you're able to bring in your own food yeah the game I think yeah. that's like the best that's great thing about baseball actually because most ballparks do you allow to do that maybe someone should just bring in a bunch of really great food and then just sell it to people in their section. Or can, somebody, then over, you have to kick them out. You could operate like a rogue stand outside of the ballpark or something. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like uh yeah, I, oh, that'd be yeah. good. 
Instead of like the people great, selling yeah. four dollar Yinglings and boiled hot dogs outside, there's like how do you want to make bagels? Some, some, some underground, underground, Sunday. underground yeah. veggie dogs, oh, <laughs> veggie dogs and bagels. Yeah, <laughs> I would love like a bagel with salmon and cream cheese as I walk across the the Plumeni Bridge. That'd be brunch with the Bucks. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, finally, one final question I have for you. Uh, what what do you think Pittsburgh is missing in terms of its dining culture? What what one restaurant or cuisine or dish would you like to see offered that isn't currently offered or that nobody's even touching or thinking about attempting yet? I, I mean, I, I love really high-end sushi. It's one of the, the great pleasures for me, and it's one of those things that I try to, you know, eat on a budget most of the time, but we'll spend, you know... Have definitely had sushi experiences where I've gotten the bill and, and looked at it and went, oh shit, that is way too much. At least it was an experience, but yeah. it felt like it was really worth it. Yeah. Um. And and I think this idea of we're landlocked or whatever is 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 kind of the way of the past now. Like we have an airport, we have some very good seafood suppliers here. People can do it. Food is um, global now. Yeah, but I yeah. but I don't know if there is a market for it. I mean, Fakuda was amazing and it wasn't even that expensive. I, I didn't have trouble. Filling the seats, but I mean that's something that I would love to see. Is that I think more than anything else, more than anything in the world. <laughs> Just give me my sushi. Kurt, how about you? What do you What do you think we could use in Pittsburgh? Yeah, um, I want to be able to buy tacos on the street. Okay, just when I'm walking on the street. That's kind of, mm-hmm. there's a new taco place opening in Bloomfield apparently. Though. Yeah, I'm excited about uh, that joint, which is great because I want something other than those. Two pretty good Thai restaurants to eat in Bloomfield, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I do like that they're both good and they're like kind of competing. Like yeah. I like dishes at both of those yeah. places. I'll eat lunch at Gourmet and yeah. American Cuisine. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that's I, I like I, I would like more options during I guess inconvenient hours or where I need something real quick. Mm-hmm. That because there's like that like fast food alley down Bomb Boulevard, which it's just bad for me, and I would, <laughs> I would like something better. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see uh, a better diner, especially open late at night. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna, awesome we're gonna get too. that during the daytime, right? Right. Uh, pie for breakfast, which is gonna be legumes next space. Oh, so that's gonna yeah, be I'm excited for that. That's gonna be great. But yeah, I think at night it would be nice to see a place that was a counterpoint to the the line that yeah. like spills onto Bomb Boulevard from Wendy's. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. It'd be nice for Wendy's to have some competition for something that's a little yeah, bit. Exactly. Yeah. Like you know, no one wants to go to Ritter's. And then I know, mean, there's <laughs> a time and a place. For I, I live very close to Ritter's. Yeah. And, I probably get it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's about it. There's yeah. there's probably other things that I would like that I don't know about. <laughs> most pressingly, I just yeah. Given my roots, I just really want a good bagel joint. I want there to that's be good right. bagels. That's right. There's no there's there's very few good donut spots in Pittsburgh too. True. Uh, and that's like that's another thing that we're lacking desperately. I gotta say, I do love patty cake. Uh, I yeah. think that's like very classic bakery donuts, and yeah. I think those are those really take me back to my childhood. I really appreciate those donuts. Right. But yeah, I agree. There could be. I mean, it's not like dough in Brooklyn or whatever making these like. You know, donuts the yeah. size of your People head. Staying up all night. God, yeah. they're so good. Yeah. They're so good. <laughs> Holy shit. But I, I, would, I would pay like $5 for a good donut and, and not even think about it. Yeah. Or you got to go out to Better Made and, you know, then you got to get up early to go to Better Made. Right. And, yeah. It's just the it's, whole uh, thing. Mary's Donuts at the Rogers, Ohio Flea Market on Friday mornings. Oh, yeah? Oh. Uh, which is about 45 minutes away. Rogers, Ohio Flea Market is is 
fantastic. It's, for food. It's, yeah, it's acres and acres. Uh, no, not for food, except oh, for Mary's donuts. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> just as like, just as far as flea markets go, it is, it is, it is phenomenal. Okay. Um, acres and acres. Uh, it's open year round, but it's better uh, when the weather's warm. Okay. But Fridays, uh, Mary's donuts is an Amish donut maker, and yeah. they are. They're amazing. Okay. I I will drive there on Friday mornings from time to time just to go and do that. Awesome. Like it. <laughs> I like I like good donut tips. Yeah. Yeah. Have anything else to add? That's that's the that's best it. tip I got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. All right. Since we took taken everything good out of Hal Klein here, we would like to say thank you for coming on to yeah, our thanks, show. Hal. Hey, thanks. And, uh, that's a all pleasure. Until next time. Yeah. Let's go, Bucks. Let's go, Bucks. Let's go, Bucks. <laughs>